0: inserting ssd card jack booby uploading <laughs> that's my computer voice
1: that's not a good computer voice at all Fuck
0: off you know what
1: you know what liz okay first of all calm down uh, no brace no. is tired brace is hungry I,
0: i'm not hungry uh, when we had the break between two episodes i ate the leftover lunch that i made so no, what I'm not hungry. This is genuine anger. That was a good computer voice. Jack Booby is a good name. For, I know we still have to call it JFK 101. We could call it Jack Booby.
1: Okay, let me do it. Ready? Okay. Inserting memory card. Wait, what am I saying again?
0: Uh, I don't. I don't know because I don't know why you would insert it. But uh, I don't know. Upload, didn't let's you say do that? Like,
1: what did you say? Uploading.
0: Uploading Jack Booby.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uploading Jack. Booby,
0: Don't mind if I do. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you are getting the worst uh, uh, of us (laughs) for these JFK episodes. Every time,
1: I, you know what, you know what, you're not. You're getting the best.
0: When we started recording, what are you looking at? It was uh, me, nothing, because it's dark now, and I don't have any lights on. Because when we fucking started recording, it was like high goddamn noon, and now it's I'm here in the dark like a little Dracula.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You do look like a little Dracula. Hello, everyone. I'm Liz.
0: My name is Dracula. I couldn't even think of something funny my, I'm the cock, I'm the I'm the fucking Transylvanian cocksucker. <laughs> uh, and we have Please put that on Wikipedia. <laughs> we have, of course, joined on the ones and twos producer Young Chomsky. The podcast is called True and
1: Hello everyone. This is the penultimate.
0: Mm-hmm. That's
1: Installment right. of our JFK series. Um, and you know what? I'm not going to even fucking tell you what it's about. So.
0: Well, they can, we said Jack Booby at the beginning.
1: Well, so it's. You might still not get the reference. Oh, it's
0: Jack Booby started uploading. Stopped uploading. We're good. Start the episode. What? I don't know. It's, what you does know, that we, even mean? We inserted Jack Booby earlier and it finally finished uploading. No,
1: no one's going to get that. That's so No, understand. Sp-
0: no. How about we'll do it this way?
1: Let's just start the show.
0: All right, freaks. Welcome back to Dallas. We have with us, as always, independent researcher Ben which I really got to give you like a fake last name for this because independent researcher is such a long <laughs> title and then just Ben. It's B E N. Uh that's it's uh it's, it's, a, it's a, it stands for something but I'm not going to tell you what. And of course, we have with us as always Aaron Good, a scholar earned his PhD writing about US hegemony, elite criminality and the deep state. His uh, dissertation is being published by Skyhorse and we actually Do have a link in the description this time. It has finally arrived and updating the past ones too. Uh, And joining us as always are the ghosts of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald and Jack Ruby here to duke it out in a long, really tortured marionette segment where we (laughs) imitate their voices for far too long until the bit really goes dry. Do you
1: remember Celebrity Deathmatch?
0: Yes. Yes, I do.
1: That was cool. The like. Claymation, MTV. Yeah. They should have done a Ruby Oswald thing.
0: Um, they very well might have. I think but it they, went But how could they
1: fight seasons. if they were friends? Like that little spoiler?
0: Well, so we did start, or excuse me, we did end last time with the brutal assassination of Lee Harvey Oswald getting shot in the gut by Jack Ruby. Um, obviously, a very big deal. And that leads to some pretty wide ranging repercussions and some, uh, things really start, I guess you could say moving right after that.
2: Yeah, that's right. Um, once Oswald is killed, the machinery of the state slowly moves towards, uh, finding a way to settle the dust. Uh, and this is, uh, most famously, I guess, infamously, this comes out years later, it gets declassified, that the uh, Assistant or Deputy um, Attorney General, Assistant Attorney General Nicholas Katzenbach, sends a memo to Bill Moyers, who you guys know as uh, PBS junkies out there, um, of course, He sends him a memo saying that the public needs to be satisfied that Oswald was the assassin, that he did not have Confederates who are still at large, and that the evidence was such that he would have been convicted at trial. Um, which is interesting because at this early date, Oswald's only been dead, you know, a few hours. And it's strange that he would be able to make such a pronouncement so soon. Uh, He also says that speculation about Oswald's motivation ought to be cut off. We should have some basis for rebutting that this was a communist conspiracy or, as the Iron Curtain press is saying, a right-wing conspiracy to blame it on the communists. And this part is funny. He's, he writes, unfortunately, the facts on Oswald seem about too packed, too obvious. Marxist, Cuba, Russian wife, etc. The Dallas police have put out statements on the communist conspiracy theory, and it was they who were in charge when he was shot and thus silenced. So right away, you have not only this statement about trying to pin it on Oswald and Oswald alone, which is completely unwarranted by the circumstances because... It has gone from being, you know, strange and suspicious to very, very strange and suspicious. Uh, but also, he's even acknowledging that, you know, yeah, it, it looks a little bit like he's a communist. But then it's kind of so obvious that even that is problematic. So, um, yeah, what are we going to do about this?
3: Yeah, because we talked about um, we talked about the, this sort of flirting with disaster that that certain elements within the deep state did. Right? We we talked about Frank Sturgis, for instance creating all of this uh, propaganda that, uh, that uh, Oswald had met, uh, had been paid by a Cuban agent in Miami. And obviously the Mexico, the supposed Mexico trip mm-hmm. that he took uh, to supposedly meet with Kostakov, the KGBs, Western hemisphere political assassinations director, which almost, almost certainly did not happen. Yeah. Right. It's, it, it's almost seems like Oswald likely was not even in Mexico city. And so that, um, that, that framing, the fact that that um, what the information that was coming out of these sort of maybe more right wing elements was that was that Oswald was a communist. Uh, so then immediately after Oswald is killed, uh, there's a there's a good article uh, by Donald Gibson called "The Creation of the Water uh, Warrant Commission," where he talks about uh, he really goes through a, a detailed chronology of how this discussion between uh, Eugene Rostow, who was the dean of of Yale Law School, I believe, um, and Katzenbach. Uh they very like almost immediately after Oswald was killed by Ruby, they had started to come up with this narrative. And it seems like they already perhaps had been fed a narrative mm-hmm. by somebody else who higher up because it seems like they came up with this very, very quickly, this idea of Oswald and Ruby as the as the as we've referred to it, the dual the dual nut <laughs> theory. Yeah,
1: yeah, dual nuts. Uh,
3: of the assassinations. And um because, as you can imagine, so Katzenbach, assistant, assistant, you know, director of the Justice Department, obviously RFK, pretty despondent at the death of his brother. So Katzenbach is basically running the Justice Department at this point. So obviously has a huge amount of, of impact. Um, and he and Rostow are basically on the phone talking about the fact that uh, we have to put together a presidential commission because we have to convince people. I think one of the things that Katzenbach says in his memo to um, to Moyers is that we have to convince people that Oswald would have been convicted by a jury trial of having killed him. Uh, and so we need this presidential commission to reassure people of that fact, but you immediately see in the memo when he talks about, as Aaron mentioned, this idea of the, the, uh, iron curtain press, Mm -hmm. but also the fact that, uh, Oswald had been sort of framed up as potentially being a Cuban or, or Soviet agent, um, that's on their minds as well. Right. So it's, it's the combination of, um, The Dallas police has completely bungled this thing. They've allowed Oswald to get killed, so we can't have a jury trial. And so now we need to convince people that Oswald did do it. And simultaneous to that, we have to make sure that any potential information that might link Oswald to the Soviets or the Cubans uh, can't come out into the public. And we obviously know now that that stuff is all bullshit. And um, I would guess that maybe Katzenbach suspected that based on, as Aaron mentioned, his comment about all of those facts seeming too pat. Um, But it's... uh, this just reminds me very much of, of 9-11. Yeah. Uh, of course, I always want to bring it back to there. Uh, with Zelikow basically coming in and, and writing an outline of the 9-11 Commission's report uh, before they had any done any investigation, right? Uh, coming in with a, uh, a story that they had already decided on. And it's very reminiscent of that. It seems like they have this concept of Oswald as the lone nut. Long before, as Aaron mentioned, they possibly could have known that that was the case. And as we have discussed, it was not the case at all. Uh, and that story, by the way, the, I mean, because the, uh, people don't really know much about the House Select Committee, for instance, the official story that you hear is still the Katzenbach memo story. Right. It's still to this day, the story that was come up, you know, that they came up with, you know, within 90 minutes of, of Ruby killing Oswald. That is still the story today that you hear from mainstream media and from the uh, government officials. So it's a, it's very sticky.
1: Yeah. I want to just to like reiterate and drive this home, like the Warren Commission, emerges because the government needs to convince the public of the official story, not in order to figure out or like find anything or provide any kind of fact finding or any kind of open thing, but purely as a propaganda piece to solidify this entire like completely ridiculous story that we're gonna come up we're gonna lay out that the government has now sold the American people. Like that was the purpose of the Warren Commission full stop. Um And I think it's like important to kind of like understand that, that this is also kind of part of the entire operation, right? And actually, I mean, it's so cheesy to be like, the cover up is worse than the crime. And I don't, I mean, you know, they've fucking assassinated the president. So I'm not saying that, but, but also it's in some ways it's, it's um, just as important, you know, at the lengths they go in order to um, sell the story.
0: Well, I think too, they were faced with a couple of choices um, and, and it's obvious which one they chose. It's borne out by history, but they essentially had the choice to have an investigation in Texas, which on one level would make quite a lot of sense, right? It was a murder that happened in Texas. I mean, you'd think that much of the investigation would take place there. Uh, and anyone else gets killed in Texas. Usually they do not form a congressional committee. To with subpoena powers to figure out who did it, or rather, to tell you who did it. Uh, but they chose this very um, August body. I guess it's not an August body. An August body implies some kind of age, although many of the people on it were very old. Uh, but they chose to to gather this this group of old men, many of whom had close connections to, as we know now, and as you probably could have guessed at the time, the people who actually were behind a lot of this uh, to essentially tell the public. The Phase Two story, because uh, you know we mentioned this, I think, in a previous episode. But P- Peter Dale Scott lays out a uh, a couple of official narratives that were bandied about about Oswald. One that he was a some kind of communist, Soviet, Cuban, whatever agent, and then the second one, which is what we come to know now, is the 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 dual nut theory or the lone nut theory. Um, And it seems like the Warren commission was, was really just dedicated to hammering home that phase two story. And I mean, it, it does it, well, you know, we can elaborate on this, but like it does it in, in a, in a very sort of permanent way. I mean, that is still, even though most people, I, I mean, I think it's still the vast majority of people do not believe the official, thus the Warren Commission report story on the assassination. Um, that is still basically the official government line, and, and like Ben was saying, like that—that's—that's the—that's the official narrative. Is that Oswald was acting alone, Jack Ruby was acting alone, despite what any other part of, piece of evidence will tell you.
2: I would say one person who gets overlooked in this discussion about. The assassination and the formation of the Warren Commission. Even though Gibson mentions it in his article, uh, you know how many people read that. It's is um, Dean Acheson. Uh, Dean Acheson is he's even he, he seems to be even higher up. At, I mean, if you can think of it as a as a hierarchy, higher up in the establishment than someone like Dulles. Like Dulles seems to have quite likely been involved in the operational side of it, but. Atchison could have been among the circles, you know, of the pinnacle of the uh, you know corporate elite in America who came to a consensus that Kennedy probably had to go. He had been Truman's Secretary of State, and he's a from an old money super establishment family, and he is a guy who, in the while he was in government, really established the kind of cosmology of U.S. foreign policy in in pretty significant ways. He was the boss of um, George Kennan, who wrote the long telegram from Moscow, which basically lays out the theory of theory or policy of containment towards the Soviet Union, really depicting the Soviets in much more, um, you know, uh, grim and uh, dangerous terms than was warranted, given that the Soviet Union had just lost about 27 million people in a war and were not itching to fight against the united states at all who just demonstrated that they have the nuclear bomb and so on and it's you know it it just is very implausible that Kennan just oh i'm gonna send this memo off real quick and types out the long telegram if you've ever read that um but that sort of said that so he's you can think of Acheson as the father of containment i would argue and then later in, after the events of 1949 where the communist uh, the Communists win in China and the Soviets detonate a nuclear bomb and you get you know, it leads to this red scare well it that's around the time that NSC 68 gets written or it's like a year later right that gets written by Paul Nitza who is sometimes you know one of, considered one of the like fathers of the neocons this like super militarist guy but he wrote NSC 68, really at the direction of Atchison also. So Atchison, and this is where the more aggressive version of containment, which is like rollback, gets formulated, okay? And this, so Atchison is a guy, you know, very connected to the state, but also these forces outside of state, this sort of super Wall Street Eastern establishment elite. And he has basically formulated the two acceptable May, uh, foreign policies of the United States, which is containment, which is pretty much, you know, confrontation, especially in the periphery uh, towards the Soviet Union and using communism as a useful pretext for all sorts of neo-colonial foreign policies and so on. And then later, he comes up with rollback, which is even more belligerent, right? And calls for an even bigger military buildup, which eventually comes about in the Korean War, okay?
0: That, so that's what NSC-68 is. It's like a national security memo. Uh, it's basically saying that we need to roll back the, the, the communist advances.
2: Yes, and also that um, they're going to need a big military buildup to make sure that they have overwhelming you know, superiority. They overstate Soviet capabilities. And they also make the argument... For really, what I what comes to be, you know, what we what I call exceptionism, which is just this permanent uh, state of exception that the U.S. should operate in to confront communism. Because they they make statements in that report that our morals won't be endangered if we, you know, pull out all these stops. You know, our, it doesn't matter if our actions don't match our ideals. Anything to stop communism is acceptable. And so this is, you know, this is Atchison's baby, and. This is what Kennedy was proposing an alternative to, sort of like Henry Wallace. You know Henry Wallace wanted cooperation, friendly competition with the Soviet Union. Kennedy was moving in that same direction. And this was unacceptable to the people who had been the architects of post-war US hegemony. And I think that it's not a coincidence that when it comes to covering up his assassination, the guy who is persuading the people who are lobbying, LBJ so hard was Dean Acheson, you know, the guy who also was manipulating events to come up with containment and rollback and uh, is a, you know, a a very much a uh, key figure of of the establishment. There's a good article by history professor Bruce Cummins about this, where he just talks about imponderables, meaning like these questions about US policy and how it's geared towards Wall Street and big oil and that some of these figures are, are guided by motivations and connections that we as historians cannot really be privy to, but we can at least sort of see the shadows of it. And I think that um, it's it's important to uh, focus on Acheson and his role in this and, and really see that it's not just a matter of people in the state, but the higher sort of deep political system of the U.S., especially the pinnacle of corporate power that... Um, makes you have to think that if this is a state crime that we're talking about, that these elements of society have to be brought into our understanding of the state. Um, and Atchison is really emblematic of that. And uh, there's a quote from Acheson that's at the Harry Truman Library, an interview he did uh, closer to the end of his life. And he's talking about democracy. And he says, uh, you see, you all start with the premise that democracy is some good. I don't think it's worth a damn. I think Churchill is right. The only thing to be said for democracy is that there's nothing else that's any better. And therefore he used to say, tyranny, tempered by assassination, but lots of assassination. People say if the Congress were more representative of the people, it would be better. I say the Congress is too damn representative. It's just as stupid as the people are, just as uneducated, just as dumb, just as selfish. So to my mind, this it's interesting. He's talking about assassinations, you know, as a way to, eh, you know, Bring in the more unruly tendencies of a system of government and also just his utter contempt for uh, the democratic principles that we're all supposed to pretend to believe in America. Um, it's that's a telling quote.
0: So, these guys do eventually convince I mean, pretty quickly convince LBJ that he needs to put together this commission. And uh, the first guy that he goes to, well, I don't know if he's the first guy that he goes to, but one of the main guys that he goes to is, of course, uh. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Earl Warren, who has a career that I would not say um, is, I, I couldn't describe it as one that I would uh, have have myself taken. Um, I think he was three times governor of California. He was, uh, as attorney general, I believe, of California, presided over the concentration camps that FDR put Japanese people in. Uh, i have read places that he was a uh proponent of sterilizing um uh, japanese people uh not a great guy although pretty typical of people a man the of American his Supreme time Court. yeah exactly <laughs> uh and uh at first he actually i believe did not want to do it um i think RFK went over there and uh and was trying to get him to get on or at least that's what that's what the story says and then uh there is actually a taped recording of lbj i can't remember who he's talking to but he's talking to i think maybe boggs who's who's also on the on the Warren mm. commission talking about how he got uh warren on and he's like i think he calls uh boggs fat in it too which is really funny he's like put on your world war one uniform you can still fit into it um <laughs>
1: that's a classic lbj
0: yeah but uh but especially coming uh, from exactly. him exactly he does sound drunk in it and it does take place <laughs> close to midnight so uh but he uh, he calls up uh he calls warren he brings warren down to his office and he uh apparently berates him so badly that according to lbj warren cries um and uh and the commission sort of forms around him and we have some pretty um some pretty upstanding members of society on there. I mean you have Alan Dulles who is uh, a well I think friend we of the pod. Alan Dulles in every episode so you should know yeah. who Alan Dulles is by now <laughs> uh, and you have uh, you have McCloy as well and uh, and and Ben for some reason I feel like I talked to you about McCloy before. I don't know. he was former president of the World Bank and like a big Rockefeller guy. Um yeah, and
3: the other person uh who was pretty important is Forrest. uh who obviously goes on to play a, a very important role in a related conspiracy, the, the Watergate conspiracy, but it's just very interesting to see his you know, he's a very reliable guy for these people that um that they could trust that he's gonna uh that he's gonna get them the answer they want. But I, I one of the funny we were talking about this idea of of the framing of the Warren Commission being uh, the idea that we have to keep this information about Oswald being potentially connected with the Soviets and the Cubans out is that's one of the things that LBJ says to Warren. Yeah, I said, I don't want Mr. Khrushchev to be told tomorrow that, uh, and be testifying before a camera that he killed this fellow and that Castro killed him. And all I want you to do is look at the facts and bring in any other facts you want in here and determine who killed the president. And that's when, <laughs> that's when Warren started crying. So it's like that that f- uh, cudgel Gets deployed, and and Warren obviously is super important to bring credibility to this commission, being that he's the chief justice Supreme Court. So bringing him on board is is crucial. And the way that one of the ways that Johnson does that is to sort of scare him about this specter of possible nuclear war.
0: So we got a, a few other freaks in there. Uh, we have Hale Boggs, <laughs> who I just really likes. And the, there's no one named Hale Boggs anymore.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like,
0: like, like even the last name Boggs, like, how did that go away? I mean, it's you can't you can't get rid of that. that's a last name. But never met a Boggs in my life. Uh, he died in a plane crash in, a, or he would disappeared right in yeah. '72. Um. And then, of course, you got uh, Richard Russell Jr. And uh, I think that's it. I think we covered everyone there. But they basically formed this, this commission of these guys who are generally pretty well respected uh, and give them this mandate essentially to prove that Oswald was the lone assassin and Jack Ruby kind of ended the case. Forever.
2: Yeah, the, the there were three Democrats on the committee, and that was uh, Russell... Boggs and cooper uh and they were all not really convinced uh, in the end that it was that in this lone nut theory uh the dual nuts theory and um so this was but they didn't have what they didn't have were any liberal northeastern democrats they didn't really have anybody from the progressive wing of the democratic party on the commission um which is really noteworthy and they had uh you know alan dulles's Inclusion was should which was very, you know, uh, kind of sinister. Really, he lobbied to be on there. He didn't have another job, and mm-hmm. he kept things from them um, uh, that that were important, like the Cuba business. Um, and so the Cuba and assassination plots with you know with Castro. I mean, that was obviously something that should have been um, looked into. He also began the proceedings by uh, giving these guys a book that had just been written saying something to the effect, the thesis of the book is, in Europe, this old way of politics is, you know, uh, leaders might get assassinated because of, like, power plays and so on. But in America, it's just, you know, lone nuts who are responsible for it. And then somebody pointed out to him that, well, what about, you know, the Lincoln assassination? There was a big plot there with a number of people. And then he's Alan Dulles said, well, John Wilkes Booth was so... Uh, so hell bent on killing Lincoln that he was basically like a lone nut himself, you know. So,
0: so, if you really want to do something, it just becomes yours. You know what I mean? I mean, all your friends they fade into the background.
2: That's it's called praxis. your
0: assassination.
2: <laughs> no. Yeah, and there was uh there was there was a, there was a rumor that RFK had. Requested Dulles to come on there, or this was stated by people after RFK was dead. And RFK would say in public, Oh, the the Warren Commission, they're great men, and Alan Dulles is a great man. But that's the same thing that Kennedy said about him when he fired him. I mean, we know that they went around looking to get rid of any other Dulleses in the government. And so, you know, I don't think that uh, you can put this on RFK at all. In fact, McCone, the director of the CIA, on the day of the assassination said that our reports indicate that there were bullets fired from multiple directions and that there are multiple shooters, uh, and RFK pretty quickly, uh, puts, tries to say to one of the Cubans that had been working for him, like your guys did this. And, uh, he also comes to realize soon that, um, Jack Ruby had been in contact with people that he'd been investigating in the justice department for their connections to organized crime. So it's what that shows. And he comes to believe basically RFK comes to believe something similar to what Garrison and, um, and, uh, Oliver Stone believed that it was, um, you know, the national security state elements within the Pentagon and CIA that were responsible for this. And this is really noteworthy because he is the attorney general. He's the top lawman in the country. And yet he comes to believe that the forces behind this are not, uh, cannot be touched by him in this position. And he plans to come back and look at it as president. Um, but in the meantime, He publicly supports the Warren Commission until a little bit towards the end of his life when he actually does make some statements about um, wanting to reinvestigate the assassination and then from the position of the presidency, and he gets killed.
0: Yeah, and, and the Warren Commission, I mean, for all of its bullshit, they do put out a shit ton. Of work. And I I, know that 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 could be I mean, I've always sort of thought of that as part of the operation. Right. Yeah, absolutely. If if you want to convince somebody that, that you're a really serious person, put out a like what, 918 page, I think it's somewhere around there, report with 28 volumes of appendixes. I think it's the funny thing is only about like ten percent of it is actually devoted to the assassination itself, and the rest is just kind of filler, background kind of stuff. I mean, some of mm. which has been useful to investigators, obviously, but uh, but very little of it is actually devoted to the assassination itself. Um, and and one of the people they do end up interviewing, although under very strained and somewhat, I think, infamous circumstances, now is one Jack Ruby.
2: Yeah, Ruby's interview is pretty notorious. It um, It is depicted in Oliver Stone's JFK, and I, it's one of those scenes that people think, well, he must be making this up. Yeah, or Maybe like Ruby dramatizing it, this.
1: making it kind of crazy little, but...
2: Right. You know. And the, the, the fact is, you can find the entire transcript at, uh, I think, maryfarrell.com or history or Rex Bradford's site, and uh, it's even, the more you read it, the stranger it is. He, he not only says... You know, and my life is in danger. I, I can't really tell you what I know here. Please take me to Washington. And we saying, well, I can't do that. And he makes these other weird statements like, you know, uh, you, uh, you're you not going to give me that truth serum, are you? Or, or you're not going to take me, give me a lie detector test. I mean, if you give me that truth serum, who knows what I'll say. And he, he almost seems to be saying, like, can you please, like, give me some truth serum? I right, mean, let he, me wants squeal, let talk. Me he wants to He wants to. He wants <laughs> I mean, he, it's it's." kind of comical because he's someone who seems very nervous and he'd wanted to talk to uh, Earl Warren and was asking him for his help and um, he makes a bunch of strange statements within that are kind of um, obscure references uh, at one point he actually um, he they find out that they have a mutual acquaintance he and um, he and Earl Warren so he says that um, at one point, Ruby to Earl Warren says that, Hey, do you know this fellow? And they, they, they bungle the name in the transcript. They put it as like Mark Lane is one of the actual things that they put in, which is funny. <laughs> uh, but so he, he, he drops this name in a conversation to in conversation to Warren and Warren says, Oh yeah, Alfred was killed in a taxi in New York. Okay. And now this was a confusing part of the testimony. Uh, Peter Dell Scott went and looked for people who died in New York city in 62, something like that. And, uh, he finally figures out who it is. It's Alfred McLean of a Dallas petroleum law firm, uh, known as Turner Atwood. And he had clients like the Murchison's, um, Delhi Taylor, uh, oil company, Uh, And Murchison, you know, Murchison underwrote like J. Edgar Hoover's racing holidays at uh, Del Mar racetrack and at the hotel there. And this guy, McLean, who um, who had had dinner with Ruby uh, when Ruby was trying to like shake him down, basically, for debts that he owed to uh, gambling uh, interests in Cuba, you know, maybe the Tropicana Casino. And um, so and Warren knows this guy well enough to know that he had died in a taxi cab. And that wasn't publicly available information like this hadn't been reported on. So uh, and this, this character, McLean that that Ruby is shaking down, he had been a counsel for an oil exploration company called Rimrock Tidelands. And they had a subsidiary that was Rimrock International that was in a Senate drug investigation because the managing director... Santo uh, Sorge was uh, using this position as a cover for a liaison between US and Sicilian mafia and that uh, they were likely using this, he was using this position to secure things like oil rights in Tunisia, which would go to bigger companies and then ultimately to the oil majors, you know, through corruption. And so there's this whole web of like organized crime, oil companies uh, that are, you know, pretty close to establishment figures like Warren, just a few degrees of separation. Right. And they're having a conversation about this in, in, in Dallas. And this is just one example of the strange things that Ruby makes reference to uh, that, that point to Ruby's position, not just as a nightclub owner or a low level mob, mob thug, but like some guy who's sort of a fixer, And a guy who is connected to the deep political system of the protected drug traffic and so on. There's other incidents like this in his biography that come out over uh, many years. And there really wasn't the vocabulary for people to even understand these things so, so much at the time. It just seemed like, Ruby, this was like a mob style hit is what it looks like. And, you know, we should try to figure out what happened if you're a critic of the Warren Commission, or you could just believe he did it for whatever obscure reason he chose to do it.
1: Well, yeah, Ruby, I mean, we should pause here on Ruby for a second, because like we said, he's sort of the, you know, the other, the flip side of the dual nut theory and pretty key to everyone buying into this whole, (laughs) this whole Oswald dual nut theory, but he's not at all. I mean, he's like, like you kind of just teased out there. He's very well connected, not just to Oswald. Not just to Kennedy, not just to the events in Dallas, but also to all the establishment figures on the Warren Commission um, in a myriad of ways. So we should get into that a little bit. So who is Jack Ruby?
0: Well, I want to make it clear here. Jack Ruby. Jewish. Jewish. So I want to say, people say, you know, we have nothing to do with the assassination. No, we did. We did. We had a guy in there. Uh, well, Jack Ruby is, from what I understand from his early biography, he was born into pretty shitty circumstances. I mean, he is not from a wealthy family. I believe both his parents were immigrants. I'm sure from Eastern Europe, uh, <laughs> moved to Chicago, and he grew up. I think he he. I do know this. He he did take third grade twice, uh, which mm. not really. What are you What are you failing in third grade?
1: Maybe the bad alphabet. behavior.
0: Oh well. All right. Maybe
1: he got bullied. I get
0: that. Um, So so you got Jack Ruby. He's failing third grade twice. He drops out, I think, around ninth grade. And he starts, I believe he becomes a scalper and like a stolen watch salesman. Basically like, you know, a, a little teenage fucking guy who's going around and doing some bad shit uh he's not like a high level criminal doesn't seem anything like that it does seems like he eventually a little later in his life also in chicago makes some pretty important connections but beginning of his life i mean it, it's it's a little hard to tell exactly what he's involved in you know on the day to day but nothing very important Eventually, he spent some time in World War II, I believe, in the South, and then I believe either before, or right or before, or right after World War II, is in the Junk Handlers Union, um, which I think later becomes part of the Teamsters. But uh, he eventually makes his way to Dallas and uh, and becomes manager slash owner slash bouncer of some nightclubs, and he beats the shit out of some people. I mean, we can we can get to some of his actual connections later, but I want to make it clear: Jack Ruby could lay a fucking Ass whooping, like he. There, there's stories about him beating up like a professional boxer. By the way, Jack Ruby, mm. five nine, not yeah, a big he's guy. He's kind of
1: built like a little bulldog, exactly. You know? Like real, like dense, yeah, dense, I, thick, thick two C's.
0: I, I think he's described as like a Damon running character. Dummy thick, Jack Ruby. <laughs> I'm trying to sneak around but I'm dummy thick. He's he's described as something like a Damon running character. I believe during the Warren Commission, like during like either in the oh, Warren Commission or oh, bowling ball. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um and and that does seem he does have a sort of bulldog esque personality. Yeah. But the business he's mixed up into, in nightclub business uh is well that is a business where the mafia is very present. And Jack Ruby makes a lot of of friends. Uh, sometimes friends in some pretty far-flung places.
2: Yeah, you mentioned the junk handlers thing, and this is a really important event because it's in 1939, actually, and Ruby gets arrested when the president of a local junk handlers union is murdered, and Ruby is the only other guy there. Uh, and Ruby was the secretary of the junk handlers union. And this uh, leads to the Teamsters taking over, the, the mob takeover of uh, the Teamsters Pensions, the pension fund, which is used for all sorts of criminal mischief for for a long time, and helps to consolidate organized crime uh, as a as a more uh, unified entity in the in the United States. So Robert Kennedy, he wrote his book about organized crime called The Enemy Within. And he actually identified the Dorfman takeover as the key moment in the mob takeover of the Teamsters pension fund. And that was that murder that Jack Ruby was the only uh, real witness to. And it seems like he becomes an informant at that time as well, because there's records of him as an informant. And he's also uh, involved with this um, Chicago murder of a, or, or this happens while Ruby is in Chicago. So he's part of the Chicago Uh, mob but the connections between the the unions and the the mob uh and there's a there's a wire service that is important for gambling all across the u.s the syndicate uh that runs gambling and uh, is, is, is an important part of organized crime at this time and so the guy who was running it was named james reagan uh and this gets attributed to the jones syndicate and ruby is friends with this jones fellow um And following this, so the the thing about the wire service is that because it involves gambling and because it's so widespread, it is a major source of sort of deep political corruption across the US because people who uh, the cops are persuaded at first to, hey, take a little bit of money, ignore this gambling. And the cops might think, well, this is just some gambling. This isn't a big thing. But once you've got people corrupt like that then you can use that corruption to uh you know protect all sorts of other rackets and other sort of criminal enterprises that you have going on so this gambling business was sort of a way to get a foot in the door for organized crime in a lot of these places and the wire service you know is a key part of that and ruby was a a figure in that in the takeover of the wire service in 1946 but also in the uh teamsters uh mob, the mob takeover of the teamsters fund you know that happens earlier so he's a, a person who is not hot, very high level but he is he's not a low level person either he's kind of a fixer and he is is very much connected to the mob and he moves to uh Dallas in 1947 at the same time that the Chicago mob takes over uh takes over Dallas and so it appears that he is getting some kind of federal bureau of narcotics protection for these uh, drug running uh, you know operations that go through Dallas some of them would come through Mexico and then through Dallas and then to points in the east and Ruby was known to be someone who would give an okay to that to that kind of activity so um, in there's a file from 1986 1956 that um, that says in some fashion this narcotics trafficking figure involved in Mexican Texas East Coast, you know, Link, said that he got the okay to operate this uh, this route through Jack Ruby of Dallas, and that's from 1956. So he's a person who's connected to the protected drug traffic, uh, among other things. And of course, he runs a sex club uh, and is connected to, you know, probably presumably the wire service and the gambling and the, um, in 1959, FBI designated Ruby as a potential criminal informant, and they gave him like good or average r- ratings. In 1959, he also visits Louis McWillie in Havana, who is the manager of Lansky's Tropicana Casino. Um, and But despite all of this, the Warren Commission says that the evidence does not establish a significant link between Ruby and organized crime. So mm. this becomes... Uh, an important aspect that is obviously being covered up, and uh, this this is important in and of itself. Peter Del Scott describes this as a negative template, meaning that something that is obviously of significance and yet it is being covered up in a blatant way. That this is a way to point to something important just just by virtue of its absence in the in the report.
3: I was just going to throw in a little anecdote that Ruby used to flaunt his uh, his connections, his informant status because uh, at the I think one time at the at the Del Mar racetrack, I think it was uh, at that uh, he was talking to h l hunt, the the Texas oil billionaire, and he was helping him uh, bet on the Rose Bowl. and he took forty percent of h l Hunt's winnings and basically told him that this was in return for him making sure that. Uh, hunt wouldn't wouldn't face any legal problems. He was basically flaunting the fact that he could protect Hunt, you know, who himself was an extremely powerful you know wealthy guy uh, from any kind of uh, any kind of pushback from the authorities for for making a football bet
0: that trip to Cuba uh, in fifty nine that he took that actually happened post revolution, and Lewis McQuilly, I believe, was in prison at that time, along with Santos Traficante. They were released after a few weeks, I think, uh, following QB, or excuse me, QB. Wow, little portmanteau there, uh, following Ruby's uh, visit to the island. So whether Ruby was maybe carrying some money for them, I don't know. Uh, but it is certainly the timing of that is very. Um, Well, it's suspicious to say the least. And Jack Ruby uh, also—I mean, you know—you talk about he's running this kind of girly club. He really was running like a girly club. Like he'd have the cops over there as well. And, and, And you know, I believe that the Dallas Chief of Police estimated that he was like he knew you know something like a, a few dozen cops on the force but but there's i think the sheriff of Dallas was like no he knew all of those fucking guys like i mean lots of those guys went after there like a long shift or maybe to get a little money from them, or maybe to see some of uh some of the girls that worked for uh, for ruby people from the vice squad specifically too i mean he had relationships
3: inside the Dallas police department Specifically, and this makes sense. I mean, given his status as an informant, but he had relationships specifically with the vice squad, who nominally would have been, you know, cracking down on his his clubs, uh, and with the narcotics squad, who who would have been cracking down on, on the drug trafficking that he was involved in. Uh, so his his status as an informant, and obviously, you know, when we talk about informant, it's 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 really a two way relationship, right? It's it's that's the nexus between. It's not the case. You know, you say informant, and it sounds like. Oh, he's telling the FBI about all these crimes that are happening, so that they can enforce the laws better. And that's not really the case, right? He's actually serving as this nexus between mm-hmm. organized crime uh, and the mechanism that is ostensibly charged with with investigating it. So it's a it's a two way street there.
1: Well, also, I mean, the the we should the Cuba trips. I I mean, he's getting in and out of Cuba like <laughs> without the Cuban government knowing, and the only way that's happening is if he's like you know you know, getting some help from the big dogs, like he's, you know, and he's going in and out of Cuba. I mean, it's a couple times, times, uh, I believe that, that they kind of record these trips happening. Um, so, so he's doing much more. I mean, I think that there's a tendency sometimes and, you know, I don't, I, I don't know if we've done, you know, work to clarify any of this. I hope we have, but it's, it's difficult. Like there's so many kind of concentric circles around, The JFK assassination, Jack Ruby being kind of one of them, um, that there is a kind of a weird tendency to be like, okay, well, there's all these sort of like vague connections that maybe mean something, but who could say? Because they all kind of, it's, you know, they all kind of link together maybe a little bit. But like, no, there's like direct links with Ruby. (laughs) Very, very direct links with organized crime, with the government, as an informant, like you say, with the PD. and with Oswald himself.
2: Yeah, the the way that they deal with his Cuba business is uh, one of the glaring deficiencies of the um of the Warren Commission. And some of the the people that were working on it, some of the staff was they were actually honest actors uh in particular two of the assistant mm-hmm. counsels, Burt Griffin and Le- Leon Hubert. They have a memo on March 20th, 1964 that says The most promising links between Jack Ruby and the assassination of President Kennedy are established through underworld figures and anti-Castro Cubans and extreme right-wing Americans. Okay. Because he also knew some of these people like he was friends with one of the guys and had met with him uh, very shortly before those wanted for treason posters uh, of President Kennedy were posted Mm. around Dallas. Um, But these guys Griffin and Hubert, they are frustrated by the lack of uh, curiosity uh, on the part of the Warren commissioners. And so they write another memo later titled Adequacy of the Ruby Investigation. And they write, we believe that a reasonable possibility exists that Ruby has maintained a close interest in Cuban affairs to the extent necessary to participate in gun sales or smuggling. Because that becomes actually one of the things that emerges over time, that he was involved in gun running also. So as you say, it's funny that he knew all these vice squad guys because he was pretty much a purveyor of any kind of vice you can think of. I don't know of him Mm -hmm. trafficking in organs, but besides that, I mean, almost every sort of shady thing he's involved in. Um, When he was in jail after being arrested for killing Oswald, he reportedly told a friend, they're going to find out about Cuba. They're going to find out about the guns, find out about New Orleans, find out about everything. Um, and later he's eventually given another trial because there was a problem with his confession that was like, not, he hadn't been Mirandized or something to that effect. It almost seems like it was set up to get a mistrial later. And he makes statements to the effect that other people put him in that position and, uh, that he, the world will never know what, what motivated him. And he also it says that, you know, who, who's responsible for this? And he says, well, it would, it's, it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't have happened if Adelaide Stevenson was vice president. He says something to that effect. And he says, look at the man in the white house. And so he's even trying to blame LBJ when, which is likely just something that maybe somebody told him or who knows what, but, um, mm. so this is, uh, such a blind spot in the, uh, in the Warren, in the Warren commission. And, um, the, the tales, uh, of, about him running guns to Cuba, uh, in the, and, uh, were, part of the early investigation, but the Warren Commission and even the House Select Committee didn't really go that much into it. The And those two guys I mentioned, Griffin and Hubert, they said, neither Oswald's Cuban interests in Dallas nor Ruby's Cuban activities have been adequately explored. So they were were very much aware of this. They said, we believe that the possibility exists based on evidence already available that Ruby was involved in illegal dealings with Cuban elements who might have had contact with Oswald, the existence of such dealings can only be surmised since the present investigation is not focused on that area. And they kept coming back to uh, there being much evidence that Ruby was interested in Cuban matters, and they cite his relationship to Louis McWillie, his attempted sale of Jeeps to Castro, you know, like this sort of like Jeeps for hostages sort of deal, or at least for a one hostage. Uh,
1: <laughs> this, the, Yeah, th- that whole um, little story, can you tell that story? It's very odd.
2: Yeah, well, he's... so. He tries to sell jeeps to Castro, and he had been also present in meetings that were dealing with the sale of arms to Cubans and smuggling out of refugees in this whole era time period after the revo- after the revolution takes over. And they also they all, and I'll come back to the jeeps thing, but another thing that they mention as far as this evidence, they also point out how he corrected Henry Wade when Henry Wade said that Oswald was part of the uh, Free Cuba Committee, if you recall, and then somebody in the background who looks like a reporter says. Fair play for Cuba committee. And it's, it's, uh, it's actually Jack Ruby wearing sunglasses, so he's like incognito or something. Um, and they well. write, <laughs> yeah, it's perfect disguise. Uh, they write, we suggest that these matters cannot be left hanging in the air. They must either be exploited further or a firm decision must be made not to do so, supported by stated reasons for the decision. Well they're not going to get what they're asking for. They're not going to get an investigation and they're not going to get any good explanation about it. And they also mention this episode of, with Seth Cantor, a journalist who I think we talked about him a little bit earlier. He was in the motorcade uh, also and goes to the hospital, at Parkland Hospital, and he sees Jack Ruby there and he has a conversation with him. And, and so the, Griffin and Hubert know about this and they say, we, we got to decide who's telling the truth for there would be considerable significance if it would be concluded that Ruby is lying. But for some reason, they take Ruby's word for it. And he's not a person whose moral standing is such that you should take his uh, his word over a, over a respected journalist, but that's what they do. Now, you mentioned how he was going back and forth uh, in, in and out of Cuba. Apparently, he lies and says he's only been to Cuba once on vacation, but that was not true. The Cuban records show him going in and out, but then other records suggest that he had been in Dallas in between those times, and so he must have been getting in and out. In another way, which is pretty fascinating. And this jeeps for hostages deal. So in early 1959, Ruby starts to make inquiries as a middleman about the possible sale to Cuba of like some old army surplus jeeps that are in uh, Louisiana, Shreveport, Mm -hmm. Louisiana. And uh, the deal is to uh, potentially get the release of prisoners that are in a Cuban prison. And there are people who are witnesses to this. One gun runner from Texas, Robert McKeon. Said that Ruby had a whole lot of jeeps. He wanted to get to Castro, uh, and he wanted McKeon to write a letter of introduction to Castro so that uh, Ruby could talk to him about releasing some unnamed friends. Now, the key person here, or the most interesting one, is Santo Trafficante, who was held at Trascornia Detention Center in Cuba. And the question is, was Ruby the guy who got him out of there? Well a person who's an English journalist named John Wilson Hudson had also supposedly been with Traficanti in that camp. And after the assassination, uh, according to CIA cables, this fellow, John Wilson Hudson, this British journalist, um, said that, or he contacted the U S embassy and reported that an American gangster called Santo was visited by an American gangster type named Ruby. Um, and so it seems that there's, some reason to believe that he had been uh, there trying to help uh, Traficanti which makes sense because Traficanti was the uh, person who I, I believe that he's connected to McWillie also, you know, Will, McWillie runs Lansky's casino, but Traficanti had uh, was seemed to be more the guy in Cuba uh, of the syndicate. And so, you know, that's very significant that he would be there. Additionally, Traficanti was one of the people that we know find out later was, involved in the uh, CIA mafia assassination plots where Robert Mayhew recruited these guys to try to kill Castro. And it was Giancana and Traficante, especially of the big, the big bosses. So, so much links um, Ruby to Cuba, to organized crime, to gun running. Um, and that um, it's the fact that the Warren commission doesn't go into this is a uh, it really points to the general lack of credibility uh, that we that comes comes to be associated with their conclusions.
0: So in sixty four Ruby actually gets put on trial in Texas for the murder of Lee Harvey Oswald. uh one of the people that examines him rather famously was Oof. one Jolly West um who mm. apparently used some hypnosis or something. He claimed to have uh done a rather thorough uh type of examination. Will you uh,
1: mention that Jolly West's work on elephants
0: race. Oh yeah, I mean he worked on a lot of stuff, but Jolly West, uh, one of the you know these MK Ultra guys, Mm. uh, sort of made famous by the book Chaos by Tom O'Neill. My my personal most I I don't know I want to call it favorite, but the most sort of appalling story about uh, Jolly West was he at one point uh, injected like a ton of acid into an elephant. Uh, and then watched it die. And he would actually go to conventions and be like, that's me, baby. I'm the elephant guy. Like, he would joke about it, and he would, you know, he'd say that, yeah. you know, we would hang out in hip, with hippies in San Francisco. They would be, like, really impressed by him because he was the guy who'd get, you know, who really turned this fucking elephant on. I mean, he fucking killed the goddamn thing by injecting it with a goddamn chemical. The, the man is a psychopath. Uh, Anyways, he he examined Jack Ruby. Uh, <laughs> a long, illustrious career. I encourage you to read about him. Um, but, uh, but Ruby's whole defense was that he was suffering from some kind of, um, epilepsy that he was having these, uh, psychomotor seizures Mm. and that part of the defense, he hired this like really, um extravagant lawyer from San Francisco. I don't know how to say extravagant. Let's say flamboyant lawyer from San Francisco. Uh, and uh, they, they came up with this whole defense. I mean, they were trying to do not guilty and then not guilty by reason of insanity. And uh, a lot of it hinged on that Jack Ruby might have shot the revolver into Lee Harvey Oswald while um, using his middle finger. The, the, the case doesn't make a lot of sense. And the, the guy gets convicted. He gets the death sentence. Um, and then I believe it's overturned by a, a appeals court in Texas. That however, does not stop Jack Ruby from dying or rather from being executed, uh, for, for the murder of Lee Harvey Oswald, because he dies in prison just a, just a couple of years later. Um, and he dies of cancer, um, which, you know, people get cancer Multiple all the time. Multiple cancers. Yeah. He had, mul-
1: he had liver, brain, and lung cancer all at once.
0: Mm-hmm. And, uh, he dies of the sort of cancer that, uh, well, the kind of cancer that you get maybe if you're the president of Venezuela, or maybe you stole Epstein's notebook. He dies of the kind of cancer that someone gives you. Um, and in fact, I think he even talks about how they injected him with cancer um, close to his death. Because the guy, I mean, you know, it's not exactly you know a paragon of health. You know, he's not like a he's not drinking Fit Tea every day. But uh, but the fact that he goes from just being like a you know a normal guy in his I think 40s uh, when, he, when he kills Lee Harvey Oswald to dying of cancer fairly soon after is uh, is pretty extraordinary.
2: yeah, he did say that they were injecting him with cancer uh, cells, and I think what actually kills him, if I remember correctly, was a pulmonary embolism, but he was already dying of cancer and one of the medical examiners that looked. Like they did an autopsy on him, said that the tumors were very strange, like a kind he'd never seen before. I think that when you talk about Chavez, I think that's one of the things that people said about Chavez was that this was a very aggressive and extremely like unusual kind of cancer that, that killed him. So um, it's definitely within the realm of possibility that he was poisoned and you know, for Dietrich, MK Ultra, all of these. Programs that they've had uh, to, you know, create every sort of uh, dark way of getting rid of people. Um, you know, you can imagine that uh, Ruby would be a prime candidate for that, especially because he was actually talking, at, you know, about wanting to uh, explain what uh, led to him being put in that in that situation. I mean, he was identified uh, on the day of the assassination. A woman went down and said, you know, earlier that day, I had seen. Someone carrying uh, some objects uh, up the what we think of as the grassy knoll, and she um, testified to this effect to the police, and they said, "Well, can you pick this person out of a out of a lineup?" And so she does, and uh, she's it, she they turn the picture over, and it says Jack Ruby on the back, and so there's reason to think that he could have been he could have known or the police could have known that he was made at that point because he's think about this he's seen before the assassination there's a witness who sees him uh carrying some objects up to the grassy knoll and some other people there uh, off the back of a truck and then uh after the president is assassinated he goes to the hospital and just you know follows the motorcade there and then the ne- I guess it's the next day he's there correcting, uh, Henry Wade about Oswald's <laughs> Just for the record. activities. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's also noteworthy that when I talked about his previous, uh, connections in Chicago to Paul Roland Jones, that syndicate, uh, that, um, in 1963, you know, very shortly around, like really around November 12th, uh, Ruby resumes contact with these guys from that old Mexican drug connection, uh, you know, link that he has, they contact Ruby after 10 years of not having been in contact with him on November 12th, 1963. So his actions around that time, I mean, this is, and Robert Kennedy no, notices this and he's, you know, realizes that these people that he's talking to are the same people he's investigating in his mob, you know, his mob crackdown activities. And so, um, you know, I, I think that, robert kennedy the kennedys did go after the mob and they had a sense that it was a much bigger problem than people like hoover wanted to realize but even they probably he probably underestimated the extent to which it had become intertwined with the security services and with the uh legitimate power structure in the united states and ruby is just seems like a guy who is very much in that in that milieu of, of not just illegal things but the uh systematic corruption of, uh, you know, political institutions and law enforcement institutions.
3: Yeah. I guess one other thing to say about that, that possibility as well, like we mentioned the idea that perhaps Oswald had been, uh, not necessarily lured, but that he, that there was some sort of protocol for him to meet somebody at this theater and that, um, and, and that that might've been, uh, a plan to kill him there, which didn't work out. So the possibility that Ruby was, uh, as you mentioned, Aaron made, and so it becomes okay. Who can we, ca- you know, casting about? Who can we get to sort of throw into the mix here? And Ruby becomes because uh, you know Oswald is not a. He's been a useful person as a as a uh, asset to various different groups, um, but Ruby is like a, a sort of a player in a lot right, of yeah. ways, right? He's it doesn't seem like he's somebody that you would just throw away. Um, given the fact that he seems to be a pretty high level narcotics person in in um, in Dallas. He's got these connections to uh I mean he's a pimp. I mean that's I mean that's the most apt word to describe what Absolutely. he does uh with respect to his clubs. So it doesn't seem like he's somebody that you would just sort of throw away if it was sort of a planned thing to have right. um Oswald killed by him. Uh it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But the idea, the idea, Aaron, that you raised, the idea that he was made and perhaps uh stupidly allowed himself to be made by you know by showing up and and uh putting on a a, a silly disguise and sh- and being at Parkland Hospital probably he should not have been there um but the idea that uh that that's what happened you know there's a there's a very low tolerance for failure uh at the uh at these in in these kinds of things the CIA in particular has a very low tolerance for failure and if you're an asset you tend to get clapped uh by your own bosses i think that's a phenomenon that we have uh discussed many times before in this case
0: yeah, and, and and I'm not sure if we've mentioned this before, too, but Jack Ruby's official explanation for why he shot Lee Harvey Oswald is extraordinary. Uh, he claimed that he shot Oswald to prevent poor Jackie Kennedy from having to return to Dallas for the, he's basically he's trying to do, I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk about trauma these days and, you know, a lot of people deal with that in various ways. And what Jack Ruby was trying to do, misguided as it was, was prevent Jack, Jackie Kennedy from having any kind of trauma related to a trial. So he shot, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald in the stomach. Now it's weird that he did that because, uh, Jack Ruby had never voted for JFK. Uh, in fact, I don't think he'd ever voted before in his life. Um, He wasn't known as a, you know, which, you know, it's okay. You know, maybe you don't vote for the guy. Be like, hey, I love this uh, fucking Camelot shit. Like, oh, he's hanging out with Marilyn Monroe, those bazoongas. But but it is certainly a, um, well, it's a hella random thing to do. And uh and it's in fact one of the least plausible, most bullshit excuses I've ever heard in my life is to spare Jackie Kennedy the uh the trauma it's such of having a to come
1: good back. like mob guy thing to say though, like, ah, oh, I was doing it for the lady. It's like yeah. it's so good. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's he's uh, the pimp with a heart of gold, right? Exactly. That's, that's not that's yeah. not oh, how the man. trope is supposed to go, but in his case, maybe. Yeah,
0: um. I mean, exactly. This is a man who sold women's bodies for a living. Yeah, totally. Uh, but maybe he just really liked pillbox hats. Uh, yeah. He
1: was a jet. Ja- he was more of a Jackie than a Marilyn. You know what
0: yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Classic, vibes. classic. Well, we got two dead lone nuts.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we have uh, to quote uh, Gerald Posner: "A case that is fucking closed. That's it." you know and that's 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 the funny thing about the warren commission is that their work is pretty much done for them you know to get back to the commission a little bit you got the guy who kills the president and then bam a few days later he's killed himself and there's really you know like 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 you were saying earlier there's no trial to be had we're trying to convince people sort of in the court of public opinion here and uh, and they work on the Warren Commission for about a year. They put out this voluminous, um, uh, you know, just calvokaid a however you pronounce it. Of te- there's a lot of fucking text there. And at the same time, you know, Dulles is meeting with his guys at the CIA this entire time and feeding them information about what's happening. At the commission, and he's monitoring very closely the foreign press because while much of the American press, obviously, you know, the CIA has uh, rather tight control over much of it, and of course, much of the foreign press as well. Uh, you know, there is still a, some fairly critical foreign press who are probably, you know, reacting to this and covering this as anybody would react to or cover a political assassination in most countries. Which is where you look for the culprit, and when you look for the culprit, you look at where the power centers are. And so, Dulles was was very aware of any sort of dissent from the official narrative here, and, uh, and is is getting books and newspapers flown into him via the CIA, which, by the way, he no longer still works for, uh, to essentially monitor uh, foreign foreign journalists and uh, and any kind of dissent. And this is, of course, where where some of the first dissent of the uh, Warren Commission comes from, with Mark Lane.
2: Um, Mark Lane actually wanted to represent Oswald uh, and and his mother Marguerite had said, you know, that that would be, uh, that she, she was in favor of that and they, but they did not let him, they did not let him have any actual counsel representing him, even, you know, in the grave, there was to be no uh, Oswald defense put forward by anyone. Um, So Lane becomes maybe the most high profile of the early uh, critics you also have Josiah Thompson, uh, Tink Thompson, right? He wrote like uh, Six Seconds in Dallas, I, I believe, was his first book. And that he, he's a guy who laid out a lot of how, you know, it couldn't have happened the way that we were told. And yet he always kind of uh, declined to say much about the implications of his own research. He's an he's odd character in that way. And uh, Harold Weisberg wrote uh, some early work and d- just different. Different people come out as critics of the Warren Commission. Um, one of them is, is shortly after the report is released. So the report's released in nineteen sixty-four and the press says, well, a bit like what Gerald Posner says later, case closed, it's twenty-six volumes. I mean, if it's got twenty-six volumes, it must be. How could you argue with that? Mm-hmm. How could you argue with such a giant, you know, uh set of texts i mean it's just like argument by volume i guess um
0: oh the hobbit's really long so all dragons are fucking bad <laughs> not true dragons <laughs> rock and gold is cool why wouldn't he want it
1: well it also like ensures that no one's gonna read it i mean that's like a huge part of it too i mean yeah. you, you you know the ben brought up the similarities with 9 but it's the same thing with the you know 9-11 commission report i mean no one's actually reading that stuff, and it almost no. I mean, you know, we're all raising our hand here because we have, but i but I mean, like, the whole point is that it's so long and clearly looks like due diligence that only someone who could be a contrarian or is a total nut job would want to go searching through that because obviously they've done their work and it's all right there in 26 volumes. You know what I mean? Um, so much of the the work. That the Warren Commission um, was set out to do is literally just in, in in presenting that. You know, I mean, the object of the Warren Commission, like the actual physical volumes, does so much, um, so much work preventing people from even questioning any of it. No,
3: and in a way, the. Though- the way that it functions as a cover-up is extremely mm. useful because there's nothing interesting in it. Right, 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 right. Because the whole the whole story is already wrapped up, as Brace said. Right, the uh, Oswald did mm. it, and then he was killed by Ruby. And now you know everything. You already know the whole story. And all that the Warren Commission does is basically try to explain away all of the bizarre stuff that we've described. All of Ruby's connections to organized crime, all of Ruby's connections to Cuba. Just to speak on Ruby in particular, but we also talked about de Morin and, and all of those weird connections and the Warrant commission essentially just explains all of that stuff away and says it doesn't matter it's not significant um so when you if you just take it at face value and you were to just read it it would be a whole bunch of nothing right mm-hmm. i mean that's the whole purpose of the report so there is there is nothing uh there is seemingly nothing juicy in it that you would even want to go and find like why would any person want to go and do this it confirms what they already know uh unless you were you know a researcher you had a hunch there would be no reason to even go and look at it in the first place which it's very similar to the 9-11 Commission Report in that respect, right? You already know the story that the 9-11 Commission Report tells. You wouldn't be interested to go and read that unless you had some kind of hunch uh, that they were lying or something like that. So it's it functions very, very well. It's just the yeah that argument by volume. Right. Like who is going to go through this? Who's going to churn through all these pages that say nothing happened?
2: Alan Dulles himself actually said afterwards that, you know, uh, in response to this, maybe somebody else on the Warren commission suggesting that there were unresolved issues that, you know, in the report, he said, ah, don't worry about it. People, nobody reads, nobody reads these mm. days anyway, um, which ended up being sort of true. But then other people uh, did go through it. And eventually I think Sylvia Marr was the woman's name and she made a, a, a index for it of like all 26 volumes, which, before there were word processors, that must have taken a really, really, really long time and been really tedious. Uh, yeah. That made it easier for people to, to search stuff up. And there are strange things in it where they talk about how Oswald in the Marines, for some reason, takes a language test, you know, in Russian and he mm-hmm. gets like a 50% on it. But it's like, that's he shouldn't have been able to get a 50% on it, you know, so Garrison questioned that and these other connections that emerge later. Uh, and people who claim to have their testimony changed um, and a whole lot of other problems that are there in those 26 volumes, which I have never read and uh, God willing, I never will read the whole 26, read 26 (laughs) volumes of it. Um, It would be really (laughs) tedious, but the, the, the one thing that should be mentioned is that these the commissioners. So the most active three people were McCloy Dulles by far, and then McCloy and Gerald Ford. Yeah. And, uh, and Gerald Ford infamously, uh, it, the, the actual draft came out after Oliver Stone's movie uh, because of the JFK Records Act. And you can see on the document, uh, this draft, how exactly how it was changed by, um, by Gerald Ford. So he, he just essentially it said that, that the president was shot in uh, the back, you know, around the shoulder blade. And he just marks it out and moves it to show the bullet hitting him in the back of the neck, okay, which does not match what the autopsy, what the death certificate says. It doesn't match uh, his, the president's shirt or his jacket, but it does sort of allow the magic bullet theory to almost, you know, be possible in a way, because really that first part of the fact that he gets hit in the back, uh, below the shoulder, below the shoulder blade and the bullet exits um, out above his necktie, that alone seems impossible from the sixth floor. So this is a a key part. And one commissioner, Russell, really disagreed with this part. He wanted to have his objections in the record, and Alan Dulles tricked him into uh, believing that he was having a meeting where this record would be put into the report. But the... It was those. Was the stenographer was just fake, and didn't take a record of the meeting, and so that's the way he diffused that situation. So it never even got put in the report. So while Ruby is waiting for his second trial, there is one journalist in the U S who is able to talk to Ruby one and only one. And her name is Dorothy Kilgallen. And she was more famous as a gossip columnist. So she had this deal Mm -hmm. where she would with people in Hollywood, if she could write good things about you, or she could write some bad things about you. And if you gave her three pieces of dirt on some celebrities, she would actually write a good article for this celebrity or, Uh, an agent's clients, you know, another celebrity, right? Mm -hmm. So this was part of her shtick, but she was, you know, a witty person, a smart writer. And, and she had met Jack Kennedy shortly before uh, he had been assassinated. And um, he was very, he was kind and friendly to uh, Dorothy and her son. And so she became very interested in this case um, and wanted to try to get to the, get to the bottom of it. So, um, as she, somehow she is able to get an audience with Ruby and Ruby is very cooperative with her and tells is more open with her than he had been with anybody else up to that point and so this sets her on a on a you know on this course to try to break this case and she starts to um, talk to other people about this and she makes a trip to New Orleans and she's acting pretty secretively, but she's meeting with more people and she's compiling this big um, folder of uh, the things that she'd, that she'd found out. And she was saying, you know, I'm going to blow this case wide open. This is the, uh, the case of the century really. And um, I want to be, we've got to get to the, we've got to get to the bottom of this. And so she, she was the person who actually obtained the transcript of Ruby's testimony. And uh, this, this actually shocked people Um, Because of how the questioning comes across. I mean, if you read it, it, Warren seems so disinterested in Ruby, you know, who is maybe, you know, Oswald, if he was the most important prisoner in US history, Ruby has to take that role also in terms of like what he would Mm. potentially know certainly the most important prisoner at the moment right and warren is just so disinterested in trying to ruby says these things that are so pregnant with implication or are not even implying anything that are pretty explosive and then warren just kind of moves on and uh which must have been terrifying to ruby because he he has a sense that he is quite panicked anyway and that. So the indifference of Warren must make him think, like, "Oh my God, the fix really is in, if they can get the uh, the Chief Justice of the United States to be interested in covering this up." So Dorothy Kilgallen, um, in 1965, uh, in November of 1965, um, she her life has been threatened. Uh, she tells a friend, and um, all these things are happening to her that are very strange in terms of like uh, people who are. Uh, sort of seem to be following her outside her house and she has this acquaintance that she's met who's kind of a playboy named Bo Pataki and um, he is suspected by many to have been involved with what happens to her eventually Um, but what does happen is that she is found dead in her room on an overdose of barbiturates um, sitting up as though she had been reading Um, but wearing clothes like that weren't bed clothes and it's a very strange and suspicious scene um and her notebook that had all of the um all of the notes on the ruby case disappeared and it, that's never found uh, ever his uh her ex-husband believed that she had been murdered there's eventually a coroner or a a medical examiner who is able to analyze some uh, tissue samples from her and found that she had three, uh, three different like barbiturates in her system that contributed to her death. Mm. And uh, only one of them was something that she actually had uh, been prescribed. And so uh, there's a lot of reason to believe that she had just been killed, that she essentially knew too much and was killed for that very reason.
3: And she had investigated Marilyn Monroe's death and, and had speculated that Marilyn Monroe had been murdered. Uh, like that was where she got like, uh, sort of came, came to a lot of attention. And, and when you think about the way that she functioned as a, um, like reading about her, it really, I really got the sense of her being almost a a sort of private intelligence, Mm. uh, agency of one, because her role as a gossip columnist, the way that she's collecting information about these celebrities. And when you think about, um, you know, we haven't touched on the possibilities of, of JFK and RFK being sexually blackmailed mm. by uh, Hoover yeah. and other people in that circle. Uh, but, but uh, you know, supposedly the both of them, RFK and JFK, had a relationship with Monroe. So she was sort of at this point where she was getting this information about these uh, celebrities and it intersected with JFK. And uh, it's, it's that, the fact that she was privy to that angle of it makes a lot of sense and she also was very publicly calling bullshit. Like she, uh, I, I think in maybe in 65, she, uh, she was talking in life magazine about how, uh, the, the famous Oswald photograph that we talked about where he's holding the rifle and the, uh, and these, uh, magazines, right. That, that, that had, that, that was a fake, you know, she was talking about that in the press, um, you know, which was a, which was a part of the Warren commission. So, I mean, she clearly, very clearly put a target on her back and, and, uh, it seems to me that she was she was uh, you know suicided um, uh, among many
0: other people who were suicided in this uh, in this whole case. Yeah, certainly not the first nor the last person who died in uh, well depressed circumstances. You could say um, at a, at at very opportune times for from people you might view as their opponents uh, involved in involved in the JFK case. And it's like another
3: example, just uh, just sorry to tag on uh, of you know the. Um, the way that, because uh, just to talk about how people are suicided, just very briefly, and aside here, which is what happened to Kilgallen, I think, is that she's hounded yep. by people, right? She has all these bizarre things that happen to her. You mentioned, so, you know, Bopataki, like that, her relationship with Bopataki was secret. She didn't t- talk to people about it. And she's sitting down, um, I think, at a recording of of What's My Line, mm-hmm. this, this uh, show, and somebody shouts that name over the PA system you know, while they're about to record the shows is like, no, exactly. Like who knew about that and why would they do that? So, um, all of this stuff is happening to her, just like it happened to George Mm -hmm. DeMoren, right? Like he's, he feels like he's being hounded. He feels like he's being persecuted and it can drive you nuts. It can drive you to this state of being depressed. So, um, you know, it seems very plausible therefore, right. In this situation, right. That she, uh, if you if you don't if you don't understand the way that she's being targeted if you don't understand the way that she's being persecuted it seems like she's got some sort of complex that she's paranoid yeah. and then it it's logical oh well she killed herself because you know she just couldn't take whatever you know she couldn't take the heat or whatever it was um, so whether she was actually assassinated or not uh, the the cover story becomes much more plausible in light of the fact that she was being hounded in this way that she was.
2: As an aside to this story, um, Ron Pataki, AKA Bo Pataki, he got his PhD in Christian counseling from Trinity theological seminary in Newburgh, Indiana, this little tiny, uh, shack almost that is, I used to ride my bike past as a little kid, um, right next (laughs) to my neighborhood. I, that, for some reason, that just blows my mind. Um, I guess that's not super important, but it's very funny to me.
0: That's <laughs> well, a little personal connection to it. So we got a couple of people connected to it dead already, uh, not including the two main people. Well, three main people connected to it uh, you know, dead. We got... Obviously, JFK. We got Lee Harvey Oswald, and then a few years later, we have Jack Ruby. We got the Warren Commission report out, and it is supposed to be the final word on the matter. What seems to me, and and from having read some of the contemporary press at the time, is that I think people can see, just like a lot a lot of people can see with 9-11 stuff too, is that this is an absurd story on the face of it. The dual nut theory makes less sense. Than any kind of conspiracy, no matter if it's a communist conspiracy or a deep state conspiracy or what have you. It just seems absurd that this would all be tied up so neatly and so pat by so many people who have such vested interest in doing precisely that. And we will get to a lot of the reaction to this and sort of what has happened after the Warren Commission came out, after the years start to roll by and people start to really investigate this stuff in our next episode.
1: All right, ladies and Germs,
0: wow, what a Liz! What a great hour and a half that we just finished recording. We're now recording this several hours later.
1: I mean, everyone already knows. First of all, we've already explained it like multiple times. To- in fact, I think that every time we've gone back to record these intros, yeah. we've explained what we're doing. I know, as if it's like a new funny thing. They already know. We're here, you the know thing. what? I'm gonna tell you, we're about to record. Listen to this. Lovely listener, my little gumshoe. Don't close, listen to her. Close and near and dear to my heart. Hit the mute. Um, we're gonna do another intro after this outro we're doing right now, and I guarantee you, we're gonna do the same bit.
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah. Where we're Absolutely. gonna say,
1: "Oh, we just started recording." Ha ha ha! It's gonna be the same fucking mm-hmm. thing, and it—you know why? Because we're consistent.
0: Yeah, you know what? Like people say, like wetting your bed when you're older is like a serial killer thing, but like that's not, it's a physical thing. That's how can that be like related to your mental state?
1: What? What are you,
0: what did you talk about? Sorry, I'm on the call right now. Um, oh yeah. Hey, so that's the end of the episode. <laughs> my name is Brace oh Belden. I'm Liz. And the person who provides both my plastic sheets and the production for this show is young Chomsky. The podcast is and on.